I, I met a lot of musicians that graduated and they're like, why is the phone not ringing? Why am I not getting emails? Um, and I think it's really important uh, as a recent graduate to go out there and create opportunities for yourself. This is Max Q, the podcast by Peabody's Launchpad office dedicated to demystifying what life is like after graduation. Every episode, we sit down with a recent Peabody alumni to get their take on what life is like for working artists in today's world. Multifaceted careers, time management, finances, finding balance between your work and your life. We explore that and more on the Max Q podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Christina Mancior. In this episode, I have a conversation with Sam Besson, who graduated from Peabody in 2017 with a master's degree in horn performance. Currently, Sam works as curator of sheet music and popular culture at the Johns Hopkins Sheridan Libraries and is also founder and artistic director of In the Stacks, a performing arts series set in the George Peabody Library that brings together art and literature to engage audiences in new ways. He also continues to perform as a freelance horn player. Hey, Sam. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. We're excited to chat with you and um, would love to hear what your life looks like right now. Yeah, of course. So right now, uh, my life is kind of in three musical parts. So my main job right now, I work for the Hopkins Sheridan Libraries. Um, So I work in the special collections department. So we handle all of the books or things that are too rare or valuable to be checked out. Um, So my subject area is music. So I work with a lot of our um, really big and old sheet music collections, and I do a lot of uh, research and teaching there, and I really enjoy it. Um, I'm also the artistic director of In the Stacks, which is my kind of passion project, uh, which I started back in, I think, 2017, where we do performances in the George Peabody Library. Um, And then I play uh, French horn kind of on the side for fun. Um, I had been playing quite a bit more, but unfortunately uh, had an injury, and so I had to stop for a while. But Uh, Over the pandemic, I sort of picked it up again and have been starting to really enjoy playing again. Awesome. So it's uh, you have like a mix of both like creative elements, Mm -hmm. administrative elements, kind of research related elements. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about how the different areas of what you work with kind of inform each other? Do you feel like they complement each other? Do you feel like your background as a musician helps you? to curate concerts in a better way? Yeah, no, that's a really good question because I feel like I wouldn't have any of these things without each other. Like, you know, all yeah. of all of my training was as a musician. Yeah. Um, and while I was at Peabody, I started getting really interested in, like, you know, expanding my performances to not just be music, but, like, include visual elements and other types of things, um, you know, mixing in art or, or literature. And um, so, you know, kind of building upon that is how I created In the Stacks, which kind of the, the main premise of In the Stacks is, you know, these are not just musical performances. These are combining music with other artistic things. And, you know, what's great about the Peabody Library is that there's so much in there that you can, you know, engage with. You have, you know, millions of collections of books and you have amazing architecture, amazing history. It's such a um, space. It's an incredible space. Yeah. So uh, that was actually In the Stacks was how I got my job as a curator um, because this is it's kind of an interesting position. You know, they weren't looking for a PhD or a library degree, which is kind of unusual in these curatorial positions in libraries. Um, they were really looking for someone who knew music 
you know, someone who can take these collections and really like bring them into the public in an engaging way. Um, you know, these things that are sitting in boxes in the basement and make them really come alive to the public. Awesome. That's yeah. so cool. And it sounds like I can tell you're really passionate and excited about that. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear more about your journey, kind of learning about how that work, mm -hmm. that I guess learning that that work exists, because I know yeah. that at least for myself, I would not have known that that type of position even yeah. was something that I could do. And I don't know, is that something that you mm. had aimed for over some period of time? Is it something that just kind of evolved that you realized that this interest out of other things? Right, right. No, that's a good question. I think um, in some ways, I think I was preparing for it. And in some ways, I think I was very fortunate to find that position. Um, I, I kind of knew from in the stacks, in the stacks kind of helped me discover, like, I have a, a real passion for creating public programs. And so that's what I started looking for was, you know, um, where can I work with music and work with bringing music to the public in an engaging way in a place where I have, you know, a lot of resources. You know, Hopkins is a really great institution to work for. As you know, we have a lot of resources at our disposal. Um, we've got the Evergreen House and the Homewood Museum. We've got all of Baltimore. There's a lot of history here. So, um this job ended up being kind of exactly what I was looking for. Um, and in a kind of strange, maybe twist of fate is, you know, the same day that I uh, was told by a doctor that I should probably stop playing the horn was the day that I got a call. It was like two hours later that I got this job at Hopkins. Wow. So it was kind of a crazy, crazy yeah, afternoon. That is, that is really <laughs> a kind of a sign. If there's anything yeah. that's a sign, that's yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, so if we can back up to kind of mm -hmm. your, original kind of major here yep. was playing horn yep. and this injury sort of derailed mm -hmm. some of that I'm right. and I would love to hear kind of what that experience was like going from maybe something that you thought that you were going to do to kind of discovering this new career path yeah of course so uh, it's something that happened very slowly uh, it wasn't suddenly just like one day it hurt to play the horn um and it was also kind of happening at a time where I was starting to kind of reevaluate what I wanted to make of my musical career, where, you know, from honestly fifth grade on, I was like, I am going to be in the Berlin Philharmonic. Like, that is my dream. I want to play next to Stefan Dorr and Sarah Willis. Not a bad dream. No, no, not at all. Um, that was like, this is my goal. I'm going to be a horn player. And I think if you told that version of me now that, like, I wasn't playing the horn, I probably would not have believed you at all. But... Um, you know, once I graduated and I started freelancing, I was starting to find myself a little bit frustrated. Um, I was finding that I was not quite as happy playing in orchestras as I thought I was going to be. Um, I had a, you know, a part-time job working for Hopkins for the George Peabody Library, helping with weddings and events. So that gave me kind of like a stable, you know, salary so that I could freelance on the side. Um, but I was starting to look at, you know, things like in the stacks, you know, finding ways to engage with music in other ways. Um, and it was around the same time. I think it was one particular season where I just took on way too much work. Mm -hmm. And it was yeah. it was like Christmas season. So I said of yes so to everything. Like 3, gigs and, yeah. It was like it was a gig um, two or three times a week for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And it was great because I was making, you know, much better money than during the rest of the year. But I, you know, was playing principal horn on the Nutcracker for a week and then a Pops concert and then another Pops concert and then more Nutcracker. And... Mm -hmm. It's heavy. It was really hard. And so after that, I started to notice that, like, on just a couple of notes, that things felt a little bit uncomfortable. And kind of slowly over two years, really, from around 2018 to 2020, that discomfort spread across pretty much the whole range of the instrument. 
Um, so what happens is, you know, when I when I sustain notes, um, my cheek kind of shakes uncontrollably. And I went through so many different ways of trying to fix it. Um, you know, I tried Alexander Technique, which was helpful. Um, I saw a bunch of different teachers to see if they could figure out what was going on. I tried, you know, cutting out caffeine. I tried oh hot compresses and cold compresses and, you know, taking a month off of the horn. Um, all of these different things. I felt like I was just banging my head against the wall. And I always, I knew that dystonia was something that existed because the tuba professor at my undergrad uh, was Warren Deck, and he was the principal tuba of the New York Philharmonic until he had the same diagnosis and had to leave. Um, so it was always this thing that was like at the end of, at the end of the road was like, you know, each thing that I try that doesn't work is getting me one step closer to that possibility. And um, in a way that I think was helpful in, in that it wasn't a shock when I finally got the diagnosis. It was almost a relief, actually. Um, it's like not so much like a sudden diagnosis, but something that just kind of exactly. evolves over a course yeah. of time. Exactly. So I, I finally saw a doctor um, who watched me buzz a little bit and said, yep, this is exactly what's happening. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was sad, of course, um, yeah. but it was also a relief to know that I have no control over this. Like, I can stop trying to fix this and I can focus on, like, what is happening next. So what do you think helped most with, like, the, like, the just kind of mentally accepting that and mentally embracing other things, yep. at least during that time period? I know you're playing more now, which we can talk about, but... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a combination of, of having a direction to go. You know, it wasn't like... Um, you know, Warren Deck, for example, was playing tuba in the New York Philharmonic and suddenly he's not anymore. Whereas like I was kind of at the beginning of my career and I was exploring other directions. So it was much easier for me to say, well, OK, now I can't play the horn professionally. So um, we're going to you know, put the horn in the closet and we're going to move in this direction. Um, I think something else that helped was just knowing that I wasn't in my control. And so I could stop trying to fix it. And then something that um, was maybe lucky in a strange way, was, was honestly the pandemic, because um, this happened in January of 2020. It was, so it was right before nobody could play in public anymore. So I, I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. There were no gigs, and most of the people that I was talking to had put their horn in the closet for just as long as I did. Um, so it's been a little tougher as we've kind of come out of the pandemic, and I'm seeing you know my friends and colleagues return to their careers. Um, but, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm really, really happy with what I'm working on now. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you love what you do with, in the stacks with the research, with the, uh, with the library's position that you have. Right, right. Um, and I'd love to talk more about that. But first, I'm curious, um, you've mentioned to me um, before about the ways that you're starting to get back into playing. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like this is, uh, how is that rewarding for you? And mm -hmm. how has that journey kind of evolved since yeah. the pandemic is starting to slow down and there's more opportunities to get back out there and kind of stretch that muscle? Right, right. No, it's a great question. So, um, you know, since the pandemic, I joined the Hopkins Symphony Orchestra, which mm -hmm. is a, you know, an ensemble that's made up of students, staff, volunteers, community members here. And I had a conversation with, uh, the conductor, Jed Galen, who's really fantastic. And I said, you know, look, this is my situation. Like, I know I know what I can do and I know what I can't do. So, for example, I, it's really hard for me to sustain notes in one particular register, but playing quickly is no problem and playing in my low register is no problem. So I said, like, I, I will be your low horn player. Like, put me on second horn, put me on fourth horn. Um, and I said, you know, if I feel like I'm ready to start exploring high horn positions again, so, you know, first and third horn, I'll let you know. And he said, great, you know, we would love to have you. We totally understand. 
And so it's just a really great um, low pressure, low stakes place for me to really experiment. And like, if I'm in rehearsal and I'm feeling that something is a little bit uncomfortable, um, how can I play around that? How can I treat that as just any other distraction? Because I feel like as musicians, part of our training is playing through distractions. You know, like if a baby starts crying in the audience or like if a stand falls over, I know it's like most of the audience will look over, but not a ton of musicians are phased by that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I remember performances where like I drop my mallet. I have to like go get my mallet and then continue my piece. And I'm like, this yeah. was not ideal, but it's fine. Exactly. And, and we like we train ourselves how to play through those distractions. So it's right. it's yeah. been helpful for me to reframe the kind of shakiness as a distraction and saying like, okay, well, I can't change the fact that my lip is shaking here. What if I think about my musical intention or like what if I think about blowing my air like a big brass thing is blowing through your notes rather than blowing at you know blowing at a note um so if I focus really really hard on my intentions that I find that I'm in some in some ways I'm able to tune that out so like having these experiences now with HSO and Mm -hmm. other potentially other places now in the future will kind of of can help you feel more comfortable with what you feel confident in yeah 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 and um and now, you know, having played in, in the Hopkins Symphony Orchestra, I found out, like, if I add a little bit of vibrato to my notes, I can actually hold them for longer mm-hmm. than I thought. So it's been a, cool. a, a really, a really great, great place. Yeah. So to kind of, like, switch tracks now and mm-hmm. hear a little bit more about your other work. Yep. So your goals and priorities have obviously evolved over time. And yeah. it's really awesome that you have started in the stacks, mm-hmm. that you're now applying the creative skills you have to your work with the library. And right. um, in terms of in the, spe- in the stack specifically, mm-hmm. what do you find creatively rewarding about that work? Mm-hmm. And what are the things that you focus on in terms of like presenting that yeah. series to the public? Yeah. So um, I think what's really rewarding is, is just, you know, the creativity. Um, you know, we, like I said, we pair music with non-musical things. So every every concert has um, some sort of theme and uh, we, we kind of change the themes and try to make them as interesting as possible. And a lot of this kind of work and thought process for me uh, has really focused on, on audience engagement. So there are a couple of ways that like I approach audience engagement. Um, you know, the first big thing for me is like thinking about the overall energy of a program. So, like, for example, one of my biggest pet peeves is when you come to a concert and they start with a speech. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen, you know, like, people will come out and talk for, like, five or ten minutes at the beginning of a concert. Um, maybe, like, thanking the donors and talking about things that, you know, are going to happen. Um, and I found within the stacks that, for me, it's so much better to just start with a quick, exciting piece. Um, you know, you have, I feel like at the beginning of the program, you have your audience at like they're most engaged, they're most ready to like jump on board with you. Um, And so by starting with something that's quick um, and exciting, maybe two or three minutes long, that you can really get the audience to like jump into the program. Um, And then you can do the talking and say, thank you so much for being here. You know, you can save, you know, we have to thank our donors. We love our donors, but maybe thank them towards the end of the program uh, instead. Um, so you're not, so you're starting the, you're kind of setting, setting the stage immediately with like, this is the, um, ambiance of this concert. This is the tone of this concert. Exactly. This is what we're, we're portraying today. Yeah, exactly. And, and from there kind of thinking about what is like, what is the archway of, of the concert? Are we mm-hmm. maybe alternating between fast and slow pieces or are we building a lot of excitement and then ending with something that's like surprisingly somber and, you know, leaving the audience on the thoughtful side. Yeah. Um, but really thinking about like how each piece fits into the program and, 
like something maybe controversial that I'll say is like, don't be afraid to play things out of order. Uh, like if you're playing a five movement work or a three movement work, but two of the movements really excite you, just play those two movements. It's okay. You know, Beethoven yeah. is not going to care that you didn't play the scherzo. Um, so the other, the other really big thing for me is like developing skills in um, speaking to audiences and contextualizing the music that we're playing. I think this is the biggest thing that, that frustrated me and that was missing from a lot of performing that I was doing is, um, you know, people will introduce music and you'll hear a lot of, um, you know, Beethoven was born in Bonn in 1770, making up a year, and uh, he wrote this during his Impressionist phase, um, which I'm, I'm just kidding for the record, but um, that stuff is helpful, I think. Or, you know, you'll read when you go to the symphony, like the, the liner notes, it'll say... Um, the, the second movement of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony starts with a really lush string ballad, and then it'll be a, a lilting horn solo that's built in D major, followed by a oboe solo. And, and like those things are true, but I feel like it's only scratching the surface of how you can really engage with audiences. They don't really tell you as an audience how to interact with that piece. Or exactly. How, like, and not that it's not necessarily a, something you want to dictate, to the audience, right, but like, how right. are they supposed to even consider the experience for themselves? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think, you know, it's, it's great when I hear those things, it's, you know, it's, it's a step in the right direction, but I think that we need to think about how we can like make a personal connection with the audience. Like how can you frame music so that people are engaging with it and, and making it relevant to their daily lives? And how does pairing music with the non-music elements, like either the mm -hmm. photos or research or whatever you're using, right, um, right. How, how does that facilitate that process? Yeah, that's a great question. So my, my approach there has, I, I really learned um, from Ensemble Connect at Carnegie Hall, which is you know their education wing. They, wow. um, they did a kind of a summer intensive for small ensembles, and I think they still do. And my brass quintet was part of like the first cohort. We were marquee brass. And so we worked with them and we got to learn from their musicians what their strategies were. And the way they approach things, or at least the way I remember, is that they have um, what they call an entry point. Mm -hmm. And then they have a line of inquiry that supports that entry point. So for example, an entry point is like the theme of your program. So um, one example that we did on In the Stacks was, I think we called it synesthesia, which was you know equating um, music with color or sound and color. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that actually associate specific sounds with specific colors. So that was our entry point. And then the line of inquiry are a series of questions that lead you to that entry point. So like, how do we hear color as sound? How do these things mix? How have composers utilized color in sound? Um, and that kind of leads you to kind of contextualize things differently. Um, so I think that example, we were playing a piece by Berlioz called uh, Le Jeune Apache Breton, which is for horn, voice, and piano. So uh, rather than just talking about how Berlioz um, liked to use color in his pieces like an artist might, we played a couple of notes for the audience. On, so I played a note on the horn, I played a note on the piano, and then we had the vocalist sing a note. And for each of those, we asked the audience to imagine a color. Yeah, so we had, and uh, we asked people to share, and like this is maybe a little bit of a sidetrack, but when I have the audience share, rather than just saying, like, can someone raise their hand and share, I find people are really reticent to do that. But <laughs> yeah. if you ask people, like in this case, we said, um, you know, imagine that color and like just let it fill your head. Like, you are so confident this is the color that you're hearing. Um, now turn and tell the neighbor next to you what color you That's heard. That's a great idea, yeah. yeah so now they're interacting with each other rather yeah. than having to like 
be on the spot. Exactly. You're just like breaking the ice in that little way that makes people comfortable sharing. And then we say, now tell the neighbor on the other side. Um, and oh, that's then, a lot like teaching, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then we would say, now, like, does someone want to share? And then people were so willing to raise their hand and say, that was orange. And like, no, that was blue. Oh, we had awesome. like a little yeah. fight break out in the audience over what color it was. Yeah. And then we said, okay, now that you've heard these three notes, we're going to play the whole piece for you. And it's maybe five minutes long. And hear how the colors are changing. And there's no wrong answer. Whatever colors you're hearing are correct. And it was just like a totally different experience for the audience because um, they were making a personal connection. They were part of the creative process. They had like a personal stake in this. And they could talk to each other of like, oh, yeah, did you hear when the horn came in there? It kind of added this like tie-dye effect to the music. Um, so I think such a great example. Yeah, just like these little ways that we can like take a step further than um, just explaining what's happening in a piece and really making a connection. And I think the last thing I'll say here is um, kind of approaching the way we advertise our music. Um, I see a lot of performances that will say, you know, works by Beethoven, Brahms, and Schubert is something you know really common. And yeah. I think um, that's great for people who love those three composers, but for someone who's like uninitiated or a muggle maybe, like they don't, they don't know those people and so I think we're leaving them out. Um, something that I think that Joe Bergstaller said, uh, one of the trumpet professors at Peabody when I was here is that the most valuable thing people have is their time nowadays. And so when we're advertising, I think we need to think about like how do we communicate what we're doing in a way that convinces people this is worth their time. Mm -hmm. And especially for new audiences, yeah. for them to be able to make some kind of connection mm -hmm. when they're coming, like you said, with without that kind of music history or music yeah. theory knowledge that yeah. is often referenced in yeah. descriptions of yeah. concerts. Yeah, exactly. So I think that you know by contextualizing your music in, in the way that we've kind of talked about, you're you're bringing in people that don't know music, but you're also not like talking down to people. And, it, and I don't know how I feel about that phrase, but I've, I've encountered um, performances where you've got a mix of new audiences and people that are like in the know, like they know, they know when Beethoven was born. They know he didn't have an impressionist phase. Um, <laughs> but so if you, if you start explaining things to the audience and you're talking to the group of new people, then the people that already know, they're going to feel like, oh, this is not for me. You know, yeah. this is this is for new folks. So you, you have to find a way to engage, I think, both at the same time. Yeah, you're totally right about that. And um, what would you suggest for students who are maybe new to the audience engagement mm -hmm. side of this yeah. um, to start to practice and build those skills? Yeah. What are the things that or maybe what are the things that you did? That's, uh, mm -hmm. I know you mentioned a couple like attending the, um, the seminar with Ensemble Connect, but yeah. what can others do to start to do more with that? Yeah, I think. Honestly, it's going to sound cliche, but practice. Um, mm -hmm. Just as we practice and master our instruments, we need to practice and master public speaking um, and, and contextualizing. So something that I liked to do when I was at Peabody in the Horn Studio is we would just get together and, and play for each other outside of studio class. And so if I was experimenting with, you know, I, like I have this idea that I think it would be really cool if I play this piece with all the lights off. Mm -hmm. um, there was a piece for solo horn. And I was like, oh, this would be so cool if, if people couldn't see when I was about to play. And it was a surprise to them every time I started playing. So I would get all of the horn studio in the studio and I would turn off all the lights. And then I would perform the piece and say, what was that experience like for you? Um, and they would give me a lot of feedback. What surprises you most about life after graduating school? So I would say the biggest surprise for me was structure. Uh, I think, you know, we're coming from 
not only like an undergrad or graduate degree, but like most of our lives have been structured by other people up until the point we graduate. Um, so for me, it was learning how to create structure for myself and create balance for myself. Um, so, you know, putting a schedule together, figuring out what my calendar is going to look like, figuring out what contracts are going to look like when I'm gigging. Um, and even now, figuring out, you know, my, my position at Hopkins is I'm the first person to have this position. So um, there was no training manual when I started. It was about figuring out, you know, what is my, what is my life going to look like? What's my day going to look like? Um, and again, there's a lot of trial and error to be found there. Yeah. What are the things that have worked for you to kind of create that structure for yourself? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a horrible memory. I just like, I can't remember things. Um, so for me, the biggest thing is just getting everything out of my head immediately when I think about it, um, because I know it's not going to stay in there. So if it's an idea for in the stacks or if it's like an email I want to write, or if it's a grandparent that I need to call. Um, so I use, I really like Google tasks, um, because it's just an easy way to put something in your phone. You can organize it into little lists, and then it's really satisfying when you click on something and it kind of poofs and disappears. I identify <laughs> with that. I use, I use Asana. Yeah. It's a, a similar, like, task-managing yeah. app, and, like, I, don't, I don't, would not be completing anything I needed to complete if I did not I have know, it. I know, I <laughs> know. Um, Trello is a really great one, really great organizational tool. It's kind of column-based um, mm-hmm. that I use for planning travel as well. So, yeah, for me, it's just, like, not, not trusting myself to remember things. Awesome. And anything else that you found pivotal for kind of um, structuring life after it's all on you? Yeah, I think carving out time for just fun um, is a really big one and that I think um, I could have done better when I was freelancing as just, you know, figuring out what you really enjoy outside of music. So something for me has been rock climbing. Um, I really love rock climbing, and so I build in time a couple of times a week to just go to the gym and climb and meet new people and socialize and um, kind of get my head out of work and music. Any other advice for students in terms of resources they should be taking advantage of while they're still in school? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think... Peabody Launchpad is really fantastic. Um, having having been at another institution, I you know this is a really really great set of resources and people that are here. Um, something that's kind of along those lines is on the on the vein of advice is um, not waiting for the phone to call or sorry not waiting for the phone to ring. Yeah. Um, I I met a lot of musicians that graduated and they're like, why is the phone not ringing? Why am I not getting emails? Um, and I think it's really important uh, as a recent graduate to go out there and create opportunities for yourself. So if you're freelancing, maybe that means, you know, looking up a couple of local orchestras and emailing the, for me, you know, emailing the principal horn um, and saying, hey, can I come, can I play duets with you or can I buy you a coffee and chat with you? Um, you'd be really surprised at how many people are willing to get free coffee, I think. Um, and so a yeah. lot of people, I think, like to support emerging artists, too, oh, because yeah. they, think they were there. Yeah. They understand. Yeah. I mean, especially local freelancers, too. Um, something I kind of did when I graduated is I figured out, like, who are the one or two people that are doing most of the gigging in Baltimore? And I mean, very luckily and unsurprisingly, they were Peabody graduates. So that was like a really great in. But yeah. um, sending them a, a note or an email and saying, hi, I just graduated from Peabody Um, looking to freelance, can I play duets with you sometime? Or can I take a lesson? Or can I buy you a coffee? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, assuming that person, you know, likes how you play and you you have a good experience with them, 
Um, I wasn't afraid to say, you know, give me a call if you ever need a horn player. And slowly, you know, it took time, but they started to send things my way and I started to send things their way. And, and pretty soon, you know, you've built this network of like a really mutual, mutually beneficial relationships. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, on that note, mm-hmm. I would like to thank you so much for sharing your time and experience. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. To learn more about Sam's work at the Sheridan Libraries, you can explore the Lester Levy Collection, which features more than 30,000 songs of American popular music and is one of the largest digitized sheet music collections in the world. Thanks for listening.